Hello and welcome to the August 2022 edition of Aeon's Retirement Market Update podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Ricky Marsh, and I want to start this month's episode by congratulating the six Aeon colleagues who have been shortlisted for this year's Professional Pensions Women in Pensions Awards. Ellie Simmons and Kath Patel are both finalists in the Young Achiever of the Year category, with Alison Murray and Susanna Calder up for Advisor of the Year. Philip Allen's nominated for Investment Manager of the Year, and last but not least, Joe Sharples is in the shortlist for Innovator of the Year. Joe's actually today's guest, and she'll be joining me later on to talk about Aeon's DC Master Trust. I will make sure I embarrass her by mentioning her award nomination again when she comes on. In other awards news, this month saw the announcement of the winners at the British Podcast Awards, and drumroll... No, we didn't win anything. I guess there's always next year, but I'm not sure long intros are really the way to win awards, so we'd better get on with the news. I'm sure you've noticed there have been a few movements in the world of politics over the last month. We had a stream of ministerial resignations, which culminated in Boris Johnson agreeing to step down as leader of the Conservative Party, although he remains in place as Prime Minister while the party selects a new leader. One of the things that kicked off this chain of events was Rishi Sunak's resignation as Chancellor. He was replaced by Nadim Zahawi, who, as far as I'm aware, is still in that role, although it has been a bit difficult to keep track. To raise coffee... Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, was one of those who actually remained in her seat during this particular game of musical chairs. Pensions Minister Guy Opperman was among the ministers who resigned. For those who like numbers, I think he was around 50th on the list. However, he was then reappointed the following day after agreeing to serve as part of Johnson's caretaker government. He said on Twitter that he'd agreed to help the DWP navigate the next few weeks while the Conservative Party decide the appointment of a new Prime Minister. All of these ministerial appointments are, of course, subject to review once the new PM's in place, so there could be more changes on the way. The leadership contest is now down to the final two, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, with the winner to be announced on the 5th of September. Despite all the political upheaval, the government did manage to publish a ton of draft legislation on the 20th of July. One of the things included in this was legislation to address the inconsistency between the two different tax relief approaches for those earning less than the personal allowance. This is something the government had promised in their manifesto for the 2019 election, which all seems a rather long time ago now. The legislation sets out the basis on which HMRC will make top-up payments to low earners in net pay arrangements. These payments are designed to better align outcomes with equivalent savers in pension schemes that use the relief at source approach. The top-ups are going to be paid directly into bank accounts starting from the 2024 to 25 tax year and the government's noted that complex IT changes will be needed to deliver this and I guess that's one reason why this isn't happening more quickly. And while HMRC will be notifying members who are eligible for the top-ups, they'll still have to go through a process to claim them. There's some concern that this could mean many of the 1.3 million savers who are actually eligible for these payments will still miss out. The DWP's published the response to its consultation from earlier this year on pensions dashboards. This reiterates that the government remains fully committed to making dashboards happen at the earliest opportunity. Now, the main headline here is that the staging dates for the first two cohorts have been pushed back by two months, although the overall timetable hasn't changed. Public service schemes will also have a bit more time, with their deadlines being deferred by five months. There's also a change for hybrid schemes, which I'm going to attempt to explain. So the original proposal was that hybrid schemes would need to work out the staging deadline for their DB and DC sections separately, with the earliest of those deadlines then being applied to the whole scheme. However, 
these schemes will now just need to look at their total membership across all sections and their staging deadline will be the same as a pure DB scheme with that same number of members. The DWP also snuck in an extra consultation on a couple of technical points, but that was only open for three weeks and it's already closed, so I'm not going to bore you with the details here. As if that wasn't enough, we also have a new consultation from the Pensions Dashboard Programme on standards. This is mainly about putting some meat on the bones of the legislation, so lots of stuff on technical and operational details, as well as the requirements for those connecting to the system. If that's the kind of thing you're interested in, this consultation is open until the 30th of August. Way back in May 2021, I mentioned the DWP had launched a call for evidence on how schemes approach social risks and opportunities. Essentially, this is the S part of ESG that nobody really talks about. This can include issues ranging from workforce conditions and supply chains to community engagement, consumer protection and modern slavery. The DWP has now published its response, highlighting some of the ways trustees can take these social factors into account. As you might expect, the main focus here is on stewardship, with the DWP being fully supportive of active ownership, including engagement with the companies and others in the investment chain. However, there were a range of other approaches mentioned, and the response highlights that the right approach will be dependent on the individual scheme, their members, and the nature of the assets invested. What's clear from the DWP's response is that they think more needs to be done in this area. To help with this, schemes are being encouraged to join the Occupational Pensions Stewardship Council, which is surprisingly hard to pronounce. Um, the DWP has also set up a new task force led by the pensions minister to support trustees and the wider pensions industry with some of the challenges around managing social factors, including identifying reliable data and metrics. One point to bear in mind here is that this is all focused on the investment aspects. So unlike, say, climate change, we're not currently seeing much on the broader consideration of social factors in the running of pension schemes, although I'm sure that will come along later on. And finally, there's been more controversy around the new transfer regulations introduced last November, this time around the red flag on transfer incentives. Now, I'm not going to get into the details of who said what, but there have been claims that the way some providers are interpreting the regulations is too strict, and that this is causing genuine transfers to be delayed or even blocked altogether. Seemingly in response to this debate, the DWP and the pensions regulator have put out a joint statement on the transfer regulations. The statement reminds us of the DWP's consultation response and TPR's guidance, saying the legislation should have no impact on the process for transfers that, prior to the introduction of the regulations, would have caused no concern. However, they do then go on to acknowledge the concerns that have been raised, both here and in relation to overseas investments which I mentioned last month. TPR's made changes to its guidance to address this, confirming that while incentives are a red flag issue, if the incentive is considered normal practice and represents a low scam risk, the transferring scheme could still consider granting a discretionary transfer. The DWP will also consider this issue further as part of its ongoing review of the transfer regulations, with a report on that due no later than spring 2023. And if you'd like more information on this or any of this month's other news stories, I'll include contact details at the end. Right, it's time for today's interview, and I'm very pleased to welcome the Chief Investment Officer for Aeon's DC Solutions, Joe Sharples. Now, I've just been looking back over our list of previous episodes, and Joe's been on the podcast once before back in July 2020. Believe it or not, the topic at that point was negative interest rates, which is a pretty stark contrast to what we've been talking about more recently with interest rates finally on the way back up. Just shows how quickly things can change. Anyway, today's topic is actually default investment strategies for DC members. 
and in particular the approach we're taking to this in Aeon's DC Master Trust. So Joe, I guess a good starting point would be to ask why getting the default strategy right is so important. Now that's a great place to start and having that right investment strategy in place for someone can make a huge difference to their outcomes. So how much money they'll actually have in their savings pot when they come to retire. And it's really interesting because even what might seem to be a very small amount of extra return goes a very long way when you compound it up over many, many years of investing. And I think this is even more important when it comes to that default strategy, because we know lots of people don't engage with their pension. And actually, lots of people find investments quite daunting, quite complicated, quite scary. And so quite rightly, we'll rely on that default strategy. And that's very much supported by the figures that we see, which typically show that upwards of 90, 95% of people will stay in the default strategy. And that really undermines its importance. So can you tell us a little bit about your approach for the Aon DC Master Trust? Yeah, so our starting point is our members and understanding the outcome or how much money that they might need or expect when they come to retire. We then use that to work out the returns that our default strategy will need to deliver or generate for them over their lifetime and taking into account how much risk people can take at each stage of that journey. That thought process leads us to targeting returns of 4% above um, consumer price inflation or CPI in the early years. And that's essentially the long term return that we expect to get on a portfolio of growth assets such as equities. At this stage in someone's savings journey, it's important to focus on that growth, recognising that people at this stage will be investing for many, many years and can afford to take that risk. From then on, as people get closer to retirement, for about 15 years before retirement, we then gradually start reducing that target return. And I think that's that's really important because at this point, people's risk appetite does start to change and it gradually diminishes as they get closer to retirement, really because they have less time to change their plans if something happens. By the time we get to retirement, we're targeting returns of 2% above consumer price inflation. Now, once we have those targets established, we can then use those to work out the asset mix that we need to have at each stage of that journey. And we can regularly review that to allow both for what's happened in the past, but also changes in market conditions and changes in the outlook. And I think it's it's keeping this focus on member outcomes that runs through every stage of the default strategy from sort of setting those return objectives to then how we set the asset allocation and monitor performance. I think that's really important in terms of making sure we have that right default strategy for people. And so I guess in practice, what does that actually look like in terms of the asset allocation? Yeah, so having done all that, the next sort of job is to turn it into reality in terms of what what sort of assets do we actually invest in. So in those early years for our younger members, the focus is very much on growth assets. Um, At this stage, uh, people are typically investing for multiple decades, um, so a really long time, and so they can afford to take more risk. And so equities form the mainstay of our allocation, and that provides low cost growth over the long term. Now, that said, within those equities, I think it's so important to diversify and you can diversify by geography, by sector, by company and also by currency. Our approach is to invest globally so we get that diversification. And we also incorporate something called factor investing, which I think is a really great way of giving some additional diversification and helping to smooth out some of the the bumps in the road that we might experience along the way. 
Now, the asset allocation then starts to change as people get closer to retirement. So we introduce more defensive assets. So things like sovereign bonds or government bonds and corporate bonds, so that by the time somebody actually gets to retirement, their savings are then invested across a mix of different asset classes. Now, the other aspect in terms of asset allocation is actually the implementation. And one of the, the key considerations in our process is thinking about how we take account of environmental, social and governance or ESG factors. And I think that's particularly important when we are investing passively, as is the case for a lot of DC pension schemes. So there are a number of steps um, that, that we do, a number of things that we take account of here. Um, so first of all, we screen all of our managers to make sure that they're taking these issues seriously and that's particularly impertinent when it comes to things like voting and engagement when you're investing passively. We also include what we call an ESG overlay that helps us to manage climate related risks for our members and that works by investing less in carbon intensive companies and more in companies that have a lower carbon footprint. But it isn't just about cutting car cutting carbon. We have this idea of carbon tunnel vision. So we actually want to invest more in companies who are making a positive contribution to a, a just and fair transition. And I think that will become increasingly important in the coming years. Now, I don't want to turn this into too much of an advert, but I noticed Hyman's Robertson's latest survey of default fund performance in Master Trust showed Aon's performance to be particularly strong for younger savers. Can you just tell us a bit about what's behind that? Yeah, so really pleased to, to see the results of that survey. And in answer to your question, it, it very much comes down to the approach that we use to create default strategies and how we, we focus on member outcomes. So in those early years for our younger members, we're aiming to provide returns above inflation plus 4%, as I, I touched on earlier, and that's through a well-diversified equity portfolio. Now, that might sound risky when you think about that in isolation, but it's really important to remember that we are investing for 15 plus years, possibly sort of 30, 40 years. And so with that time frame, you can afford to take a long-term view and you can afford to accept short-term volatility in exchange for higher expected returns over the long term. And that's exactly what our members have experienced. They've benefited from that pro-growth stance in that growth phase, and they've seen really strong returns over the last few years. What's equally important is then how we, we keep managing that going forward. And the approach that we, we have in our defaults is designed to be dynamic and keep evolving as opportunities arise and market conditions change. The other point to note here around the survey is it wasn't just younger members. So actually we've seen strong performance as well for our members who are at retirement, um, showing that really it's across the board in terms of membership who are benefit, benefiting from that approach and philosophy. So one criticism we often see of DC defaults is that they can be quite static. How do you get around that particular problem? Yes, so I think that's quite a fair criticism and we have typically seen defaults being very static and then perhaps going undergoing a sort of major upheaval. The way we do that is through our outcome approach and in particular we regularly monitor the performance of our default against those long-term objectives that are linked to price inflation. Now if our performance is all on track as expected then that, that's great and we will de-risk our members um, closer to retirement, just in line with the plan. However, if we see that performance is better than we were expecting, then that means we can de-risk those members a bit faster, i.e. we're de-risking them earlier than we were expecting to. 
The flip side of that, of course, is that if performance is behind expectations, then we can actually pause the de-risking for a period of time. On top of that, we're then regularly reviewing the asset mix that underlies um, the default strategy to make sure that it's still on track to achieve the returns that our members need, and we can adjust that if required. So it's really a combination of putting those two together um, that allows our strategies to be dynamic. And just to give you a bit of an example, um, last year we were able to carry out some additional de-risking for those of our members close to retirement, and that allowed for strong past performance that we've seen over the last few years. And what's that meant as we've come into the start of this year and the market volatility that we've seen is that they're in a better and more defensive position. And that's really helped them to sort of withstand some of that volatility. Now, from my perspective, I think this is a really big step forward in default strategy design. And it takes us away from that idea that DC defaults are sort of long term set and forget strategies. And it brings a lot more dynamism into defaults that actually genuinely evolve with markets and performance. So just to finish up, and you did allude to this in your response there, um, we've seen market volatility over the last few months, particularly. What's driving that? And in particular, what does it mean for your DC default strategy? It's certainly been quite an interesting few months from a market perspective. And a lot of the volatility has been driven by rising inflation, which in turn has come from a dramatic rise in energy prices and to some extent food costs as well. And I'm sure we've all um, looked at our electricity bill or looked at how much it's costing to fill the car up with petrol and just wondering how on earth it came to cost so much. And alongside that rising inflation, we've also seen central banks putting up interest rates. And actually, I can't believe it was two years ago when we sat here and spoke about negative interest rates. Um, I don't know whether the time has gone. But this combination of rising inflation, rising interest rates has impacted equity markets particularly those companies that have a bit more of a growth focus, and they've also impacted bond markets. And we've seen some significant falls in bond prices over the first half of 2022. Now, for our default strategy, that's meant we have seen values fall. Uh, I think it's very difficult to avoid that when equity and bond markets are falling around you. But what is really important is to remember that we are investing for the long term. So short term volatility in markets, while it might feel uncomfortable, it is just part of investing. And our message to our members has always been about that and to, to sort of stay the course and think about the long term. The other aspect to remember, and I know this isn't always easy to do so, is that when markets are volatile and particularly when markets are falling, every one pound you invest in that goes a bit further and it buys you more units. And that can be really powerful from a return perspective longer term. Now, Turning to our default strategy in particular and what we're thinking about, um, we aren't planning any immediate changes to the long-term strategic allocation. Our strategy was always designed to be long-term and weather periods of volatility like these, and it has held up well. We've also seen the benefits of the diversification we introduced around bringing in some factor equities and also having diversification across currency. And that's been particularly helpful in the last few months. I think and the other thing to note here is actually one of the things that we did last year, which I touched on earlier, was we did carry out some additional de-whisking for those members closer to retirement. Um, and that's really helped those members in, closer to retirement to, to better withstand some of the, the volatility that we've seen in the first half of this year. Great. Well, thanks for joining us today. And before we go, I should also just say good luck at the Women in Pensions Awards in November. Thank you very much.
Okay, that's plenty for today. So thanks for listening. And thanks again to today's guest, Joe Sharples. I'm off to get some tips from some of those award-winning podcasts, but I'll be back with more next month, including something on the new draft funding regs that came out slightly too late to make it in this month. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget you can subscribe to the series through all the usual places, including the Apple Podcasts app and Spotify. And if you'd like more information on our retirement solutions, or you want to feature in a future podcast, you can contact me on ricky.marsh at aon.com. Otherwise, please visit our website or email talktous at aon.com.